one of the, the most valuable things that you as the writer can do for the reader is not just empty your notebook of all the facts and stories that you've gathered about someone, but to really think about it and ask yourself questions like, what is my impression of this person? Welcome to the Life Story Coach Podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi guys, Amy here. This is the show for life story professionals. We create books, videos, audios, and more for clients who want to record their life story to share with their family and friends, to share it with their kids and their grandkids. Today, I'm happy to welcome Mark Bowden onto the show. You may recognize his name. He's the author of 13 nonfiction books, including Black Hawk Down. And if you didn't read that book, you may have seen the movie, which won a couple of Oscars. He's written for lots of great publications, including Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair. He's a national correspondent for The Atlantic. He spent three decades on the staff of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And his latest book, Hui 1968, was released just last year. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Amy. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm, I was just, before we got going with the recording, um, listeners, I was telling Mark that I, I hope I don't go all fangirl on him. I've been a fan of his writing for quite a few years now. And Mark, you write about all kinds of topics, everything from warfare to drug lords to sports and lots of things in between. And you've written in all kinds of formats. So newspaper articles, long magazine profiles, books. You have a very impressive output. And I'm gathering that all of this started when you were fresh out of college and you took a job as a newspaper reporter? Yeah, thank you for all those nice things, Amy. Um, but I I started writing actually while I was still in college. I, among other interests, um, liked to write and kind of by a fluke became editor of my college newspaper, which involved doing a lot of writing. I had a professor in college who really encouraged me as a writer, and so I made up my mind as a student at Loyola College back in the early 1970s that I was going to make a living as a writer or die trying. My experience in college was the exact opposite because I I almost hesitate to admit this because here I am living, you know, making my living as a writer, but I only had one semester of English in college. And that was because my professor, who I thought was the coolest guy in the world, he had driven a taxi in New York and he wore this really cool hat. So in my mind, he was kind of hippie writer and, you know, lots of street cred. And um, he and I loved English up until this point, And he ended up, um, I can't believe that I'm admitting to this. He took a paper that I wrote. He whited out my name, passed it around to the class, and we discussed why it was such a bad paper. I never took another English class after that. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that it's cruel. horrible. It is. <laughs> but I always love to write, and I always love to read. So, you know, maybe it was despite to spite him to show that I could actually do it. But so yeah. different, different beginnings. Well, I used to teach um, writing for a number of years at the University of Delaware, and and what I did was I made sure I shamed everybody in class <laughs> once or twice. Uh, I had something called the Hall of Shame, and I emphasized very few, very specific things that I was trying to get across to them over the semester. And when there were egregious uh, uh, violations of these basic rules, I always made a point of putting them up anonymously, but everybody in you know, the class 
the writer knew who he or she was who said it. But it was done very democratically, so I, I think uh, it wasn't quite as hurtful as the situation you described. <laughs> right. Well, you English professors have a lot of power over the students, so, I mean, a lot of influence, I should say. But anyway, so, right. so I did read a story about... Um, I think you were talking about um, a formative experience when you were a new news reporter, I think in Maryland, and you were invited to join a sting operation. And the type of article that you were expected to write was not the kind that you wanted to write. And it sounds like maybe that was kind of a breakthrough for you in learning what kind of journalism you wanted to practice. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, you know, it was a, an important moment. Um, it was, you know, I had a, a degree in English and a love of um, great fiction, and I was particularly enamored by the new journalists of the 1960s and early 70s who applied a lot of the techniques of fiction writing to writing true stories. And I'd gotten a job in a newspaper which had no interest that I could see in that kind of writing. And at the time... You know, the the writing was very formulaic for newspapers. You wrote a first paragraph with a who, what, when, where, how, and why in it, and and developed the story in a sort of a pyramid structure. And I had gone out on this uh, drug raid, which, to make a long story short, <coughs> included things like the police getting drunk before going out on the raid, uh, you know, claiming that they had rounded up the top drug dealers in the county when, in fact, they'd raided a housing project and rounded up a lot of uh, people and grabbed their uh, petty personal stashes of drugs. And then they held a press conference where they laid out all these paltry uh, seizings. And because of my recent uh, graduation from college, I was much younger than most of the reporters there. I could look at what they offered and saw that it was really not very significant, and yet they pumped up the value. So that, uh, there was really no way for me uh, to honestly write the story um, by telling the public what the police was trying to sell. Uh, it was clearly false. And and I also sort of lacked the gumption, to be honest, of constructing a story that began by saying basically the county police perpetrated a fraud on the public, and that probably would have raised alarms at my newspaper. So the um, alternative, it seemed to me, the only uh, answer to the dilemma was just to write a narrative about being with the police on the, the drug raid, which included an account of their drinking and, and a description of the place that they raided and the kind of things that they gathered. And it was all true. Uh, and the newspaper loved it. Uh, mm-hmm. So And readers loved it. And so that was really a door opening for me to the realization that within the newsroom of the newspaper, I had an opportunity to do creative writing that to me just felt like a more honest way of telling a story than the sort of formulaic approach that most of the other reporters were using. Mm-hmm. And did it get you into, uh, well, not hot water with the, with the police department, but did it dry up your sources with the police department? <laughs> well, Captain Lindsay, who was the, uh, the, a police officer who was responsible for inviting me on the raid 
was very unhappy with the story, but he couldn't really complain because he knew it was all true. And he's the one who had invited me to go along with him. So I will say that I was never invited on another drug raid again. Uh, but I, I think Captain Lindsay had a kind of respect for the fact that I was accurate and uh, and that I had uh, written a story that everyone enjoyed reading so much. It was a little bit embarrassing, but uh, he was a good guy, and I think he understood my role. Well, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of times people will ask, um, especially new clients, uh, the storytellers that I'm hired to write their stories, they'll say, well, what if somebody in my family, you know, doesn't see things the way that I see it? Or if they come across as, um, you know, if they don't come across well. And the funny thing is, often when somebody's saying something that sounds negative about somebody else, you know, maybe it's a sister that they didn't get along with or something, that person sometimes doesn't take offense at all. They're just happy to be written about. Um, it, it's yeah. a funny little glimpse in human psychology, I think, you know, it's, it's almost like, okay, our, our moment of fame, you know, if we're, if we're seeing ourselves in black and white on in a book, um, that overrides the fact that maybe it's not the best portrayal. So, and I'm yeah. sure there are plenty well, there's, of people. There's no guarantee with that. And you're right, it does happen and happens more often than you might think. But um, you mean, it is dangerous, I think, when you write candidly about people who are close to you, uh, you can hurt feelings and you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, create anger and divisions. But I've always found um, in my dealings with my own family that it has been a benefit to me to be honest with them uh, when I disagree with them or when I'm unhappy with something. And I think that that um, uh, reputation for being straightforward and being honest is ultimately more valuable than any kind of false uh a good feeling that you get by always saying nice things about everybody. Mm-hmm. I agree. Right. Yeah. And and for the type of work that life story writers do, you know, you don't want, we don't want hagiography. You know, we, we don't want just the praise and the bright spots in somebody's life and about their families and everything. I mean, you'd it can never be a platform, or I should say it should never be a platform for, um, you know, getting even with anybody um, or or willfully hurting somebody, but yeah, there has to be some, there has to be some honesty there and some truth telling for it to be a compelling story. Well, my rule has always been to be honest but be kind. Mm, yeah, that's perfect. I I love that. Um, I know you you're not a memoir writer, and I don't think you've done any more memoir writing. But have you ever written about yourself or your family? Very little, and not not very frequently. It's a it's an area that, um, for reasons that I'm sure you're well aware, is difficult and and can be. It's you know there are risks involved that I would prefer not to take, and I think that for me the avenue to write about other people, um, other stories is wide open, and I love doing it. So I've never really felt. Uh, particularly tempted to dive into my own family stories. I show up now and then over the years in stories, and I always try to be very truthful and kind when I do it, Um, but it's uncomfortable for me. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. I remember the, I have a very vivid recollection of, of the first thing that I read, um, the first time that I came across any of your writing. And um, it wasn't any of your books, strangely enough. It was an article that you wrote about Saddam Hussein. It was a profile. So I, I think I was doing research for uh, a client who had taken part. He was one of the commanders on the mission to rescue the hostages in Iran. And I mm-hmm. guess because you had written about that um, somehow, you know, through the magic of the internet, I landed on this other profile that you had written about Saddam Hussein. And it just it bowled me over. Um, I, I think partly because the prose is just beautiful. You ha- I, I love your style. And partly because I'm always trying to look for examples that I can, you know, study and, and copy from and, and get ideas on how to to build profiles of the people that I'm doing the books about. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I love I love it when I come across somebody who does it really beautifully. And that's what you did. And okay. With with that, I think it's called Tales of a Tyrant. Is that right? Um, Tales of the Tyrant. Tales yep. of the Tyrant, right. I would love to hear you talk about the kind of reporting and research you did and the writing about that piece, because it's it's not... Um, so for anybody who has not read it, I think that you should, because you, you can learn so much from it, and it's just a joy to read. You had a really interesting character, Saddam Hussein, interesting in a, in a horrific way. So... I, I'm sure it's incredibly well researched. So you've got you've got facts about him. You've got observations. You know, I'm, I'm assuming people that you interviewed had personal had personally observed him in different situations. But then you extrapolate and you talk about. Um, you know, you kind of get into his psychology, and I think that's so interesting. So I want to talk about that, but I'd like to hear a little bit about how you did the research and reporting on that piece. Okay. Uh, Well, the big challenge, of course, in writing about Saddam Hussein was that I would never get a chance to talk to him. And I think, uh, probably wrongly, the first thing that pops into people's minds when they think about profiling someone is meeting that person and talking to them. And I've found in my work that it's nice when that can happen, but it's not the most important part of writing a profile. Uh, You know, I find that the perceptions that those who are close to your subject have are more valuable. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason for that is that at the heart of any sort of perception you have of another person is an anecdote. I mean, if you believe someone is funny or if someone is a morose character, ultimately you've arrived at that perception of them because of some experience you've had with them or some observation that you've made uh, watching them. And I think as a writer, you know, my goal is always to get to those stories, to get to those anecdotes, which illustrate the character as opposed to my pontificating or listing qualities or traits. You want to be able to show uh, what a person is like. So for the case of Saddam Hussein, even though I did write a letter to the Iraqi government and requested an interview. I, oh, wow. I um, never got a response. I set out to find people who had interacted with Saddam personally, and given I was given wonderful resources by the Atlantic, basically to travel through the Middle East and to Europe, finding people who were living in exile from Iraq, who had at various points in their lives. Uh, interacted directly with Saddam. And I sought 
their stories, their observations, their insights into him. And those were the things that um, inform that story for the most part. The, the last thing that you mentioned was analysis of him and his character. And one of the things that I had going for me was the fact that he fancied himself a writer, and he had written a great deal. And that's something I know how to do. I can read something that someone has written, and I can analyze it and, and come up with insights into the motivations of that person, uh, the way that they write, the, the influences that they have. Uh, and so that's all in there as well. And then, you know, one of the things that's so wonderful about modern times is that very often the people that I write about have been videotaped, either giving a speech or attending a public event, that which gives me an opportunity to observe that person uh, firsthand, or secondhand anyway, at least in video. Uh, so all those were um, tools that went into crafting that piece on Saddam. And I, and I think, if I can say one more thing, I'm not going on for a long time, but that that story sought to penetrate a lot of misinformation about Saddam. He had been uh, presented by, um, you know, the media and by other governments as such a villain and such a horrible person. And in many cases, there were perfectly legitimate reasons for seeing him that way. But my goal was to understand how he saw himself. And I didn't believe that he woke up in the morning and looked in the mirror and said, ah, this, I'm the most terrible person in the world. Uh, rather, I suspected that he had a rationale which justified in his mind all of the terrible things that he had done. And so my goal was to try to get at that. I wanted to be able to present Saddam as he saw himself. Mm, and you did it so well. I, it's exactly what fiction writers are taught to do. Like, you don't want to create a villain, you know, the, the antagonist who's just one-dimensional, who's evil. You want to create somebody that we can understand. So that's exactly what you did with Saddam Hussein. And um, and you did it brilliantly. And, and I, I loved that interplay of, um, you know, the all of the, his advisors who were terrified of being tortured or put to death or, or kicked out of the country, they were all terrified of him. So they were feeding him bad information. They were, they were feeding into his um, delusions. Um, and you said that, you know, that's he became isolated. The The greater the power that he had, he became more and more isolated and more delusional because of his isolation. But then, you know, you take it another step further and you say, but he knew that he was being deceived. You know, it's just this really rich, fully fleshed out human being. And we don't, you don't end up reading this piece and feeling much sympathy for him, but you do feel a lot more understanding. And that was... That's where just the beauty of it comes in for me. So you're you're taking this collection of things of people things that people have said about him, but you are then going further and kind of telling us what they mean and what that shows us about him. So I, I think that was just so well done. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. It's nice to be appreciated. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, okay. I'm going to, just so that so that we can ground this a little bit in, I, I'm going to give people an example. This comes at, towards the beginning of your, your profile. And the reason that I'm going on about this is because, you know, as, as life story writers, or if, you know, we're videographers or if we're doing audio projects, our, our goal is to um, not just to have a collection of facts about somebody's life, even not just a collection of anecdotes, right? Because even if the storyteller isn't particularly reflective and isn't particularly um, astute at seeing how things all hang together, that's what the reader is going to want. When you, So, you know, we're this conduit, we have the words that the storyteller tells us, and then they go through us, they pass through us, and then it comes out on the other end as a book or, or some other kind of project. And so it's up to us, I think, to do a little bit of that analysis, like you're talking about with this profile that you did with Saddam Hussein. And and the great thing is, you know, our storytellers are always the last and final editor. So if we get something wrong, they can cross it out. But so often, if if we have the um, sort of the gumption to take something that they've told us and just push it out a little bit further so that we can... Um, uh, make people see them uh, not, like I said, not just these facts and anecdotes, but to see them as, you know, maybe what they're thinking about, um, how they're interpreting things. Even if those were not expressed during an interview, so often people will say, oh my gosh, you got it exactly right. That's exactly how it was. You know, that's exactly what I thought. And they might ne- mm-hmm. necessarily have thought to tell us that. But okay, so that that's the reason why I'm, I really wanted to dive into this with you. And I'm going to give people a little example that I just really liked. It's a very simple one. It comes towards the beginning of your profile where you write... Um, Saddam likes to watch TV. And then you say, he enjoys movies, particularly those involving intrigue, assassination, and conspiracy. And then you give a few examples. The Day of the Jackal, The Conversation, Enemy of the State. And then you say, because he has not traveled extensively, such movies inform his ideas about the world and feed his inclination to believe broad conspiracy theories. To him, the world is a puzzle that only fools accept at face value. And that last sentence, that just, that drives it home. Like, so... That's clearly nothing that he would have said. Um, well, I, we, I guess we don't know that. But that's not anything that he said. But that is something that you had an insight about. And I'm wondering, like, yeah. those those kinds of insights, do they come to you as you're doing the writing? Or do they come to you um, because you're thinking about a project when, when, when you're in the research phase of it? How, how does that part work? Well, it's what I call making something of the material. And, you know, if someone tells me an anecdote about another person that I'm writing about, um, I won't just repeat the anecdote. I think about it. And I think, what does this tell me, you know, about the person? I think when I started as a writer, I was too timid to draw inferences and essentially tell the reader what I think about this thing that I've just written. And as I've gotten older and more confident as a writer, I do that, um, you know, much more readily. I think it's one of the the most valuable things that you as the writer can do for the reader is not just empty your notebook of all the facts and stories that you've gathered about someone, but to really think about it and, and ask yourself questions like, what is my impression of this person? Uh, how do I feel about this person? Why do I feel the way that I feel? And the answer to the why is right in the material. It's in the, it's in the notes that I've got and the 
facts and stories that I've been told. And so making that connection in my mind between my perception of the person and what created that perception helps to shape my presentation of the material. I hope that makes sense. But yeah, that, and, it, and it can happen at any time. I mean, very often, uh, you know, one of the things people ask me is how long it takes me to write something and what the process is. And I tell them that in the beginning, it's 99% reporting and research and 1% writing. And the 1% is me sitting down with a notebook um, just jotting down ideas uh, that I have either for questions that I want answers to or what my thoughts are about what I've learned already, and some of that eventually finds its way into the into the work. But by the end of the process, I'm 99% writing and 1% research and reporting. And that's where I think you are in the process of thinking something through. That's what, to me, writing is. I mean, writing a profile, writing a story, is essentially thinking a thing through from beginning to end. You're taking a reader and you're leading them down a path. And I think until you do it, until you write a first draft, you've not thought it through mm. completely yourself. And that process of thinking a thing through for the first time, which is your first draft, inevitably leads you to insights that you didn't have when you started. Because it's not a natural thing to do. I mean, your mind is all over the place, if it's anything like mine. Uh, until you sit down to write, where you discipline your thought process to actually rigorously think a thing through from beginning to end, that leads you to insights. And so you need to be att attentive to what you learn in that process. And so all those things add up to what I might began this with, which was making something of the material. Mm, mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. I mean, I, <laughs> I never, I never know what I think about something until I sit down and write about it. I mean, in general, <laughs> you know, for the, especially yeah, for the, the bigger things. Yeah. <laughs> and the mistake a lot of my students make is, you know, they write something down and they they think they're done. Right. And I tell them, look, you know, this is your first step. You've written something. Now you've thought it through. What have you learned by thinking it through? What is this story about? What are you trying to convey? And you don't really know the answers to those questions very often until you've written that first draft. And that insight is then what ought to inform what ultimately will be the final draft of what you're writing. Mm -hmm. And do you, uh, when you're going out and reporting on these these stories or these people, are you very often surprised by, um, you know, do you think differently about something after you've written that first draft? Yes. And I think if you don't feel that way, you haven't done enough work. Because, I mean, not, when I start working on something, I, by definition, I don't know anything about it. Or what I do know about it is probably wrong. I mean, that was true of the Saddam Hussein story. What did I know about Saddam Hussein? You know, I know what I'd seen and what I'd read, and I know enough about the world to know that much of what I see and what I hear is probably not true or distorted in some way. And so the process of the reporting and writing is one where you um, uh, arrive at your own understanding of mm -hmm. something. And, you know, I think just the process of working invariably leads you to surprises about people. People are inherently 
surprising. You think you know them, and then you discover something about them that you'd never heard before. That's called reporting. That's absolutely true. You know, one of the perks of of doing what I do for a living, and I'm sure all of the other um, life story professionals out there have the same experience, as soon as we tell somebody what we do, um, then they'll, and this can be perfect strangers, you know, just it happens to me all the time at coffee shops. As soon as I tell somebody what I do, then they start telling me these really interesting, interesting stories about themselves. So things that you would have never guessed just from the outside, you know, last, last week, I was at a coffee shop doing some work, and I ended up talking to this older gentleman. And it turns out that, you know, he asked me what I did, I told him. And then he started telling me about all these stories that, you know, that he wants to write down someday, including one about, it was great, about John Wayne. He apparently spent a week with John John Wayne, um, right? Uh, it was during the bicentennial, so I think it was right before John Wayne died. And he told me apparently that John Wayne was terrified of horses, and he had one horse that that he insisted on having in like I think twenty two out of the movies that he made, and you know, really fun things um, that people don't generally talk about when you're just meeting them. And and I'm sure yeah. as you know, as a writer, um, as you know, a, a reporter and a journalist and a nonfiction writer, I'm sure that you get that a lot too, you know, and it's nice because it makes life interesting, right? We, we don't have to, um, you know, we don't have the heaps of small talk that other people have to go through. So I, I, I appreciate that a whole bunch. Uh, but it, it should also make you more humble uh, because uh, the, anyone who works as a reporter or a writer um, knows uh, that when they actually go to work on something, you discover so much more, and it changes your whole way of thinking often about whatever it is you're writing about. And when you accept that that's a fact, what that leads you to understand is that for most, in most cases, your understanding of things is very shallow and probably wrong. And, and if, you, if you, I always tell people that if you uh, walk through life uh, admitting that you don't know anything or that you, uh, that you might be wrong about something, very often you'll be right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and just that, that whole being open to, to new interpretations and not, you know, not feeling like you know things that you don't know anything about. Okay. And this is a little bit of a side thing. Today happens to be my birthday. I, I oh, love, birthday. well, thank you. And I love my birthday. I adore my birthday. And I feel like it's, you know, like it's, it's my own little personal national holiday. Um, and before, <laughs> before I got on the phone with you, because, you know, I was, I was, you know, I look up to you. I look up, you know, I think you're a fantastic writer. So I was feeling nervous and I thought, well, that's okay. It's your birthday. So if you sound like a fumbling, idiot and who's very ignorant about everything having to do with anything writing that's okay because it's your birthday you get a free pass today (laughs) (laughs) but i think that that's essential and i I always say i begin a story with an acknowledgement of my own ignorance Mm -hmm. and and if you don't you know you i think foreclose a lot of opportunity to arrive at an original uh insight uh, if you already think you know what you need to know, then what good is it? <laughs> it gets in the way Agreed. of you right. having new experiences and new perceptions. So it's actually a Zen concept. You know, you uh, empty your mind. You have what they call beginner mind, which is when you sit down to write, you should sort of purge your mind of everything you think you know about writing. And that gives you an opportunity to be creative. To be to do things differently, and if you're not always doing that, you're never going to get better. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Okay, something else, and this is getting kind of into the, the nitty gritty of your work process, but something else that I read that you do is that when you're when you're in the research phase and doing the reporting for a story that you're going to be writing, that you're constantly um, doing outlines. So sketching out outlines and they change and morph as you as you acquire more information and insights. Um, is that something, do I have that right? Is that what you do? Yes, exactly, yeah. And that grew out of my experience as a young reporter. When I'd start working on a story, and these were stories that I researched and wrote in a day, and, um, you know, you're calling around, interviewing people on the phone or going to see people, and you never know whether so anybody else is going to talk to you. So, and, and you know you're going to have to write the story at the end of the day. So what I would always do is sketch out for myself a little outline of what the story looks like right now. If I have to write the story right now and no one else talks to me and I learn nothing more, what have I got? And so I would sketch out a little outline. And what I discovered as I began working on more and more complex stories is that having that working model in your mind of what the story looks like now uh, informs your reporting. You begin to, you never lose sight conceptually of the story that you intend to write. And that model, uh, that outline changes constantly because, I mean, I'm sure, Amy, you've had this experience where you think you know what you're going to write and then you get another interview or you learn something new and it completely upends what you thought the story was. And that that's disconcerting initially, but if you redraw your outline very quickly, think it through, inevitably you, you will now have a better story because you've been forced to think about it a little harder. You've learned something new. The story has developed a different structure. When you're working on stories the, kind of the way that I do now for years, if you aren't doing that, you run the risk of getting lost in the reporting and in the uh, research where you just end up with boxes and boxes of information and have no idea what to do with it. So that discipline, which I learned very early, has got become more and more valuable, valuable to me uh, as I take on larger and more ambitious projects. Mm-hmm. And do you think that, you know, now that you're writing these, these um, long, just amazing books, was that a skill that you had to work up to? Yep. It's a, it's a gradual evolution for me. I mean, there are wonderful writers who sort of, I think, are hatched with um, brilliant talent and, you know, at age 21 or 22 are writing, you know, glorious stories and novels. But I'm not one of them. I'm someone who learned how to do what I do over a very long period of time. My students would sometimes say to me, kind of jokingly, I want your job. I want to do what you do. <laughs> and I'd tell them, well, you know, that's like the American tourists in London who admire the beautiful lawn on an ancestral estate. So they asked the gardener, how do you get such a beautiful lawn? <laughs> and he says, it's really not hard. You just water it and roll it every morning for 2,000 years. <laughs> so if you were a young cub reporter again, um, could you have imagined where you're at now? Was this something that you always wanted to do, was take on these really big um, epic battles and epic personalities and write about them? Yes. I mean, this was my fantasy. This was the thing that drove me. And, I, you know, I often have said that I entered the newspaper world 
um, a little bit before, but right about the time of Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein. And I think most of my colleagues and friends who got in the business at around the same time wanted to be investigative reporters and wanted to un- uncover, you know, um, malfeasance and, you know, make the world a better place. And those are all wonderful reasons to become a journalist. I didn't start that way. I started wanting to be a writer and wanting to be a creative writer and wanting to write the kind of books that Truman Capote and uh, and Joan Didion and Norman Mailer and, and Tom Wolfe were writing. And I, of course, didn't know how to do that, but I had that as a dream, and it was a driving force uh, throughout my career. And I was very lucky to land with editors and at uh, publications like the Philadelphia Inquirer, where they encouraged uh, the kind of reporting and writing that I wanted to do. And that was unusual. I mean, back in the 1970s and 80s, to have editors that were really interested in long, creatively written um, stories it was not common. I mean, most newspapers did not have that motivation. So I landed partly by design, partly by luck, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, which I think was the uh, premier um, uh, learning ground for young, creative nonfiction writers in the country. And I had some of the best editors and colleagues, many of whom have gone on to their own remarkable careers. Uh, And I just feel extremely fortunate that I grew up in that uh, environment. Well, if... uh you know, there's a, probably listeners out there who are just getting into writing, just getting into interviewing, um, doing life story books. Do you have any advice for people who are brand new to either the interviewing or the writing? Well, yeah, I mean, some of that advice has uh, already been sort of include, incorporated in what I've been saying about process. But, um, you know, I think it's important to start with the understanding that you don't no. Uh, I think, for instance, when you interview someone, a common mistake is for a person to arrive with a list of questions that they want answers to and then adhere sort of rigidly to that list. And I think it is important to have a list of the things that you want to make sure you cover. But the important thing to know is that very often the best question you'll ask or the best answers you'll get are to things that you would never think to ask before you begin the process. So, I mean, it's important to have a roadmap, but you need to leave the roadmap to the side because until you start listening to someone, uh, you uh, there are things you're going to learn about them that you never would think to ask about. And a good example is if you ever listen to um, Terry Gross on uh, Fresh Air, the wonderful interview program on uh, NPR. And what makes Terry Gross such a wonderful uh, interviewer is that she, and I've been interviewed by her many times, and I know she arrives fully prepared, but she listens so carefully to what you're saying. And if you say anything to Terry that interests her, you know, that raises a question in her mind or piques her curiosity, even if it's far afield from whatever the subject matter is that you're talking about, she'll ask you about it. And she'll often end up taking her subjects into territory that you never imagined. 
you know, that, that you wouldn't end up in. I think that's what makes her such an extraordinary interviewer and her program so interesting to listen to. And I've been on that show, the same one, Fresh Air, where other people have interviewed me, and they're not as good at it. You know, they have a rigid series of questions that they want to ask, and they're very, very focused on whatever the narrow subject matter is that you are ostensibly there to talk about. That's why I love listening to Terry, because you never know where it's going to end up. So those are some good lessons to learn. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that's perfect. And I, you know, I always feel a little bit like we're detectives, uh, you know, when we're when we're trying to find out about somebody's life story, because they, um, especially if it's your own life that you're talking about, uh, you don't necessarily notice the things that are going to be remarkable to other people. And you wouldn't necessarily think to be telling those stories, because we all have sort of a stash of stories that we tell over and over again. Um, and yeah, it's it's leading people down those, you know, those other pathways that can be so much fun and so rewarding and can open up whole areas that they have uh, not thought about for years, um, but sure. that and are very know, important. The thing I love to hear most from someone I'm interviewing is, oh, nobody's ever asked me that question, or, or you know, I've never really thought about that very hard. And now you're getting to some interesting territory, because you're getting somebody to, to uh, think creatively about themselves, and, you know, that's where you've I think, get really rich material. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what we do is sort of small stage writing. What you do is big stage writing, but there is just so much overlap. And again, for the listeners, I would highly recommend um, reading some of your stuff because it just, you know, we can we can learn so much from it. So, okay, I, I know we're getting kind of close to the end of the time, but can you share what you're working on now? Yes, I, I've just finished writing a book which will be published in the springtime. It's going to be called The Last Stone. And it goes back to the first big story I ever covered as a reporter when I was 23 years old at the Baltimore News American. And it's a terrible story. It's a story of two little girls, uh, Catherine and Sheila Lyon, who vanished from a mall in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in 1975. And that case was never solved. I covered it, um, getting to know the family, the detectives who were working on it for several weeks, and then, of course, it faded off the pages of the newspaper, but I never forgot it. And a couple years ago, actually while I was writing Hue 1968, I saw an item in the Washington Post saying that the Montgomery County, Maryland police had figured out who took the Lions sisters and what happened to them. And so I went, I dropped everything and went, drove down there and introduced myself and said, this story has haunted me my whole life. And I ended up with a remarkable story, what I think is it's a remarkable story, uh, which I've just finished writing. And as I said, it'll be published in the spring. Well, I look forward to reading that. Okay. Well, if people want to find you or your books, um, where should they look? Well, I don't have a website of any kind, but I have written a lot for The Atlantic over the years. And they have on their website um, an easy search where you can find all the stories by a particular writer. Uh, Google is very useful. Uh, If you go to Amazon, um, you'll see uh, they have a book page or an author page with all of my books. And some of my books, two of them, uh, Roadwork and and Three Battles of Not, are actually collections of magazine writing. And those collections go back 
all the way to some stories that I wrote at the Philadelphia Inquirer 20, 30 years ago. So if you're really interested, it's it's out there and fairly easy to find. Yeah, I have road work. <laughs> I like that one a lot, too. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for for um, sharing everything with us today. It was it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure, Amy, and happy birthday. Well, thank uh, you. And I, you know, I really, um, more than anything, enjoy talking about uh, reporting and writing. And very often, as someone who writes true stories, when I'm interviewed, it's about the subject matter of whatever book it is that I've just finished, and I'm happy to talk about that. But what really interests me, understandably, I think, is the work I do. And so an interview like this one with you is a lot more fun for me than most. Well, good. Well, maybe we can have you on again, because I, there are so many other questions that I would love to ask you, mostly about interviewing and reporting and researching and how you weave it all together and you end up with this, um, you know, it's almost like an avalanche. I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not, but just with with everything together and it gets rolling down the hill and and, and then, you know, it, because the topics that you write about are also fascinating. So to get into okay. like the how it's done, I would love to hear more about that. But maybe maybe after your next book is published, we can have you on again. Yeah, I think if you read something of mine and you you think that you'd like to really explore exactly how it was done and why I wrote it the way I did, that would be fun for me to talk about. So just let me know. Oh, okay. So, all right. I have pages in front of me with all kinds of notes scribbled on them about different asking you different things. And it's all, you know, I'd printed out the um, tales of a tyrant. And so maybe that will be our next conversation. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll do it again then, Amy. Okay. Right. Sounds good, Mark. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. And that does it for our interview with Mark Bowden. For links to his books and other stuff that we talked about, um, was there other stuff? Actually, now I'm not so sure. But if there was, you'll be able to find them in the show notes. Head over to thelifestorycoach.com and look for episode 33. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mark, and I hope that you got some good ideas that you can bring back to your own writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, go out and save someone's story.